Welcome back to the Give Em Liam podcast on the Cover Podcast Network. Back for another week. I have to announce at the top of the show that this will be the last Give Em Liam podcast for the year. There's a few reasons for that. I'll get into it a little bit later, but this will be the last one for season one. We're going to do a bit of a rebrand, a bit of a refresh, have a look at some different ways that we can do this podcast, given everyone everyone is uh, pretty time poor at the moment. So we'll probably look to bring it back just before Super Rugby starts. Super Rugby Pacific starts in 2022, so in February. But... Still got a good show for you. Still got to give a shout-out to the cover. Still got to give a shout-out to Riverside.fm. You want to start a podcast? You want that video feed, video conferencing? Sign up. But make sure you click on the tile that is on our website because we get that little kickback, that nice little kickback, little little 5%er, I think. Could be 10%. I actually don't know. Got a good show for you today. Bob Gonzalez is going to join us a little bit later. He is an author, former college baseball athlete. But before we get to that, probably thought I should start on a little bit of a somber note. But I do want to shout out Patty Pimblett, Patty the Batty, uh, for bringing to using his platform, using his win to bring to the fore, forefront men's mental health and men's health generally, but I think men's mental health is a huge, huge problem at the moment. And sadly, in Australia here, we've seen in the news, Paul Green, really successful NRL coach, successful Queensland Maroons coach, sadly passed away over the last couple of weeks and and he took his his own life, which is really... You know, when you look at someone like that, you think, wow, that's someone who's had so much success... They've got a lot to be happy for. They've got a lot to be, got a lot to live for. Young family, really successful in their field. Probably one of the most successful NRL coaches, you know, outside of a few guys. Really at the beginning too of his, his career, when you think about longevity in coaching. And he was clearly going through it and he felt that, would have been easier to to end it and and once we get to that point it's it's really it's really hard um you know we've, we've spoken about mental health on this podcast a lot but what i've realized is i haven't really shared my experience with mental health both as an athlete and now as a <laughs> an adult <laughs> um and I, I think this is an appropriate forum to share some of those things. I have, throughout my life, experienced pretty rough downswings. Uh, some people, you know, some people have downswings and upswings. Mine tend to be long periods of of down, being quite sad, reserved. Um, I start to retreat into myself I start to push people away not necessarily intentionally but I retreat into myself and I pull pull out of social things 
I change plans. I stop communicating not only with my friends but with my family, my partner, all of those things. Now, where I think I am a little bit different is that I know that in my family there is a long and pretty storied history of mental health challenges, starting with my grandfather and, you know, working its way through to most of my immediate family, aunties, uncles, cousins, all, all you know, what when we actually talked about it, all have had very similar experiences. But again, I also understand that the brain is a lot... The brain is made up of chemicals and other stuff, but ultimately there are a whole bunch of chemicals that, that make your brain work. And when one of those chemicals or a bunch of those chemicals get out of whack, you've got too much of one thing, not enough of something else, sometimes the way it manifests is depression and a, a downswing in in the way that you are feeling. And what you have to understand, and this this will make sense in a second, is you are not your brain. I'll say that again. You are not your brain. And what I mean by that is that when you get a chemical imbalance, you you might have a, a depression swing and you start you start thinking, you know, terrible thoughts. You start thinking that you know, everything is bad, you don't want to do certain things, you start losing interest in a lot of the activities that, you, that you, you used to have interest in, you start to really, like what I do, retreat into yourself and if you do that for too long, if you wallow in that, you allow yourself to wallow in that, what can happen is, you know, long-term chronic depression and if you don't deal with it, and there are tons of different ways that you can deal with it. I chose to speak to someone and, th- and this is how they kind of explained what I was going through. You know, exercise helps, eating well helps, getting enough sleep helps, drinking water helps. You know, there, there are a myriad of things that you can do to try and whip your chemical imbalance back into balance. But the problem we have currently in our society and I, I think it's getting better, but we're a long way off, is that particularly with men, and men of a certain age, you know, more so, feel like if they start talking about their feelings, start expressing that they're not happy, they're sad because of X, Y, and Z, that they're going to be seen a certain way, viewed as weak, viewed as, you know, whatever. And, you know, I think when I grew up, partly was sort of told, oh, you know, get over it. Like, you'll get on with it. Like, it'll be fine, you know? And so you start to think that the problem is you. When the problem is actually not you, the problem is some sort of chemical reaction in your brain has started to impact the way that you're feeling. And if you can't talk about it, if you can't express it and can't, develop and start to implement some strategies to fix it or or help it then you start to spiral further and further into a really bad sad place i'm also comfortable sharing here that over the last probably 12 months 
I, I have been battling with this. And what's really hard is that fatherhood, to, to some degree, has had, a, has had a negative impact on my mental health. Now, that's not, that's not to say that I don't love my son because I do. I would do any, anything, anything for him, anything he asked. He's one, he can't talk. <laughs> but anything he asks, he gets. I'm always here for him. I'll be here for him forever. But what I mean by fatherhood having a negative impact on, on my mental health is the birth of my son coincided with the second COVID lockdown here in, in Canberra in 2021. It was about a month old when we went into lockdown and I'd just gone back to work. So for me, I didn't have any social interaction with anyone basically from the time he was born until we got out of lockdown four or five months later or three or four months later. The other thing that happened during that time is that I lost my job or I was, you know, put put back to a couple of days a week. And so I didn't feel like I had much purpose outside of what was happening in the household. Now, I also know that I have an interesting personality. I'm what's, I'm considered an extroverted introvert. So when I wake up in the morning, this is a, this is, this is another way that this was explained to me. When I wake up in the morning, there are, 10 coins in my cup. And for every person I talk to, every social interaction I have, a coin is removed from the cup. Now, extroverts, it's the opposite. They wake up with an empty cup and their cup gets filled and they get their energy from from talking to people. But the interesting thing about my personality is I genuinely like to talk to people. So the first five or six coins that I spend... It's really well spent. I really enjoy those six coins. The other four I could do without. And so I have to, you know, I have to be careful not to spend too many coins during the week because then I retreat into myself on the weekend to try and recharge and that can send me into a spiral. But I know this about myself. So fatherhood can be really difficult, can be really isolating for a couple of reasons, particularly for for you know, new parents generally, but but fatherhood for men, it can be really challenging for a couple of reasons. One, there are not many, any support groups available to new dads. You know, there is a text messaging service in through the New South Wales health system that kind of checks on you, but you have to sign up for it. I did, you know, it kind of felt like it was a robot <laughs> that I was speaking to, so it wasn't super helpful. And then the other thing is if you have lots of friends who don't have kids, it's really hard for them to understand what you're going through and understand, you know, why you can't do certain things. So, for example, when we got out of lockdown, and some of you might have listened to one of the other podcasts I was on, the Blame It on the Bogey podcast, who, you know, with three of my really good friends, still really good friends. But, you know, that they went to return to golf and I couldn't. And I know that it frustrated them because I couldn't do certain things. You know, I couldn't bring a, a three-month, four-month-old baby with me to the golf course. He needed to nap. He needed to feed. I needed to support. 
Kat, my partner, you know, through through helping feed, put him to bed, change his nappies, all of those things. So it can feel like it can feel like you're really distant from your friends and it can feel like you're frustrating them because they don't understand why you need to prioritize this. You know, most people's experience with children is that children that aren't theirs is that you, you know, you hand them over, they have a little play, the baby smiles at them and laughs and then they cry and they hand them back. So to them, that's what you, you know, that's what you're doing all day. You're having fun. Baby sleeps when you want him to sleep, eats, you know, at this time and it's all fun and roses, which is <laughs> for anyone who has kids is not is not the case. So from from that perspective, it can be very, very isolating as a new father or as a new parent because you, most of your friends, unless they already have kids, but most of your friends who don't have kids won't be able to put themselves in your position because they haven't gone through it. And it's only when they do have kids that they'll go, ah, got it, yep, understand why you pulled back. So the flip side of that, <laughs> if, you know, if, if one of your friends does have a child, one of the things you can do to help them is just check in on them every week. Send them a text. And it, it can honestly be like, hey, you know, I'm just checking in, seeing how you go. I'm going to be in your neighborhood on this day, whatever day it is, doesn't matter. How about I bring you over a lasagna? How about I bring you over, you know, a coffee in the morning? or something you know it can be re- it can be really simple but you just have to understand that it can be really isolating and so for me not having purpose at work not having not having any social interaction not be not not having a a a, a friendship circle or a wide friendship circle with people who are going through or have been through similar circumstances, you know, sent me into a huge, huge downward spiral. And so I recognized I needed to make a change. I did that. But I did that, moved on to a new career, uh, really honed in and focused on my home life and my, my relationships at home and, and my relationships with my close friends, explaining some of these things to them, but, you know, really trying to invest there. And spending my coins, my six or seven coins that I like to spend, really wisely with the people who I know value the coins at least to a similar degree that I do. And the result of that is that I've been able to move through it, move through the downswing, and I, for the first time, you know, in a long time, I'm very happy with, with where I am with my mental health. But I appreciate that not everyone understands these things. And not everyone understands why all of a sudden they feel they feel a certain way. And, and and the first time you go through it, I think it can be really scary. And if you don't seek the help, if you don't talk to someone, it doesn't really matter who it is in the first instance, it can spiral out of control and you can end up where so many young men and and men of a certain age end up, which is, you know, drinking too much, taking some pills and, and taking 
taking the forever nap. So anyone listening to this who has struggled or is struggling, I hope that was helpful. But please, like, reach out to me through through my Instagram. I think there's an email attached to the podcast page. So flick me an email. I'm, I'm more than happy to help. But, you know, particularly new dads. If there's any new dads out there or new mums who are struggling, let me know. I feel like, you know, we, my partner and I have come through the worst of it. You know, he's, he's a toddler now, so maybe... Maybe touch wood on that comment, but you know, in terms of the mental health stuff and the and the big change in 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 lifestyle, um, you know, we're sort of through that. So I'm more than happy to help. I guess that's a nice segue into the Wallabies' recent test series v Argentina, and I want to talk a little bit about Michael Hooper and Alan Alatoa, but but particularly Michael Hooper, who I think was really really brave in citing that. Mentally, he wasn't there. His mindset wasn't going to allow him to be impactful, to be effective. And I've been a huge Michael Hooper detractor. <laughs> I've not been a huge Michael Hooper fan over the years. Since he's come back from playing in Japan, I've changed my tune. I think he is, he's brilliant and he's grown into a really impressive leader. And to me, this exemplifies leadership. You know, he could have he could have hidden that. He could have just said, "I'm going home for personal reasons," which no one really would have questioned. But he was very upfront. My mind's not there. I need to go home and I need to sort it out. And I wish you the best, Michael. I hope you do sort it out. If you're listening to this, I'm happy to happy to talk to you. But what was really disappointing was when that article came out, there were a lot of people saying, oh, he's soft. Oh, he he doesn't deserve to be the captain. He doesn't deserve to wear the gold jersey. Which is nonsense. I'm going to put it to you this way, and this was this was raised to me by a good friend of mine while I was you know, texting in in one of my group chats the other night. We expect so much of these athletes, right? You look at the last couple of years of their careers, and I understand they get paid well, but they've sacrificed time with their families. They've They've sacrificed money. They've sacrificed so much time and effort just to be allowed to play this game in terms of all the protocols they have to go through, being forced to get vaccinated. That's a whole different story. I'm, I just want to, I just want to noted that I am pro vaccination, get your vaccinations. But I also understand why people don't want to get them. But, you know, all of the players have done that. They're away from their families for months at a time and have asked to have been away for longer over the last two years. They play all year round. Super Rugby goes from February to July. Then we have a July test series. 
Then we have the Rugby Championship from August to October. Then we go on a spring tour. And we want to criticise someone for saying, I need a break, guys. You can't be serious. Everyone listening to this podcast, think about what you do for a living. You work probably during the day between 9 and 5. You probably get paid a half-decent wage. And when you get tired, you slack off. Had a hard week. Probably don't deliver too much on those days. These guys don't have that luxury. They're one injury away. One bad game, one bad week, one bad season away from having their livelihoods taken away from them. So they don't get to phone it in. Now someone like Michael Hooper to come out and say, I'm really struggling with my mental health. I'm really struggling with my mindset. I need to just take some time off to reset. Is massive. I think he's earned that right. Over 100 tests. I think he's, he's proven his worth. And the flow on is that it's given Fraser McWright an opportunity to show what he can do, and he's been great. So we know that the number seven jersey's in good hands when Michael Hooper does decide that he's done with the game. It's just very frustrating, right? You know, we have Paddy Pimblett using his voice, using a title win to highlight the issue. Then we have Paul Green pass away because of a mental health issue. And then we have Mike, and, and everyone's happy to, to, oh, you know, it's so sad, I'm so sorry, his family, this and that. Then Michael Hooper pulls up and says, I'm not ready. And it's a problem. And I also, uh, yeah, anyway, I'm done with that. But I also want to say this, that there is, cl- there is clearly something happening, you know, within, within the Wallabies team and something particularly between game one and two. You know, Ma- Michael Hooper obviously going home. Alan Alatoa went home for personal reasons as well. And so I think if you, you know, you look at, you look at game one v game two, you know, game one was in the balance for a while. Game two was in the balance for a while and the games flipped either way. But the Wallabies had to make five changes between game one and game two, which is a lot. You know, if you, if you, if you talk to Ben Darwin, who does a lot of statistical analysis, talks a lot about cohesion, you know, lots of English Premier League teams pay him a lot of money for his cohesion algorithm. Making changes after... A, after a loss, is statistically one of the worst things that you can do for the following game. Same goes for a win, making a number of changes between. And I know, look, I know most of those changes were forced. Baisami got injured. Fiangar got injured. 
So, like, I get it. I get that uh, Quade Cooper, shouts to Quade, speedy recovery, my friend. We'll get into that in a second. But, you know, speedy recovery, mate, um, you know, did his, did his Achilles, which is a really tough one. So I appreciate that they, that they had to make the changes, but statistically it's one of the worst things you can do. And I think when you look at the way that the, that the Wallabies came out, they just looked tired. They looked disorganized. And if I can make one observation, it's this. Traditionally, I think when you look at, you know, Wallabies, All Blacks, but, but let, let's focus on the All Blacks for a second. One thing that they are traditionally one of the best teams in the world at is the breakdown. Recycling their own ball and creating turnovers at the breakdown with their back rowers or, you know, in fact, it's not even just the back rollers. They do it across the park. If you watch, if you watch them play against Ireland, and you had watched them play against the the first two game or the two, the two games against South Africa, they've been pretty mediocre at the breakdown. Slow to react. Slow to get over the ball, missing cleanouts, things that the All Blacks don't traditionally do. Now we're used to seeing the Wallabies do that. <laughs> Sorry, that was a, that was a rough that was a rough dig. But Australians, you know, traditionally, maybe the last say ten years, maybe maybe longer, maybe fifteen years, we haven't been as clinical at the breakdown. We've been okay, we haven't been as clinical. Now, I have a theory about this because the All Blacks look a lot like the Wallabies at the breakdown now. I think it's because of the way it's officiated in the, in the Southern Hemisphere, in Super Rugby Pacific. Just letting that digest. Now, I noticed early on in Super Rugby Pacific that the Brumbies in particular... It was the first game, actually, Brumbies and Reds. First game I went to watch. And I just noticed that the Wallab- the Brumbies were a step, half a step slow in support play to, to remove the threat over the ball. But they weren't getting penalised for that. And I took a mental note and I thought to myself, it would be interesting to see once we start playing against the New Zealanders, I reckon they'll, you know, they'll feel the brunt of that. That kind of never happened. And the trend that I noticed across Super Rugby Pacific is that the referees tended to allow much more time at the breakdown for the attacking team than the defensive team. Now, I haven't done, I haven't done the research, but I will. I suspect there were probably less defensive turnovers created in this most recent iteration of Super Rugby than previous years for that reason. Now, what I think has happened is that now for the national teams, that has carried over into their play and they are half a step slower or half a step slow. They miss cleanouts coming in from the side. They lose their feet, all, all kinds of different things. And if you look at Argentina and South Africa in particular, and you know, Eng- Eng- obviously England and and Ireland, all of those players play in the north, northern hemisphere, 
And I think I don't think it is ridiculous to say that they were far more clinical and abrasive at the breakdown. They were able to get clean ball, quick ball, and they were very, very disruptive defensively to our breakdown. They were able to slow up the ball and generate penalties because we were missing cleanouts, because we were a little bit slow. Now, that's just my theory. <laughs> Whether any of that is correct, I don't know. But it would seem to explain the vast gap in the way the breakdown is, one, being officiated, but two, being executed for the Wallabies and the All Blacks. I don't think anyone would deny that the All Blacks still, on paper, are the best team in the world. They're the most skilled. They can do so many things that other teams can't because of the players that they have in each position. But the breakdown is really hurting them. And I think that's fair. The other thing I want to talk about, Taniela Tupo. Now, I copped a lot of heat for being somewhat critical of Taniela. But what we saw on the weekend, the previous weekend, was he really struggled against the Argentinian loosehead. He really struggled against that front row. They were able to, to generate two penalties and he never really looked comfortable. He had to work really hard up front just to keep us competitive and ultimately that detracted from what he was able to do around the park. Now, if you go back and look at one of the articles I wrote at thecover.com.au, it talks about him being a one-trick pony. He uses the same technique against anyone, no matter who he's playing. And what that technique is, is, is to attack the hooker, which technically is illegal. It is not a legal scrummaging move. But against a really good tight head, you know, a really good tight head, when that happens, will go, awesome. Now I now I can now I can attack him, attack his ribs and move it and, and make it really hard for him to generate any power. That's exactly what what the Argentinian front front row did to him. And they were very smart in the way that they lulled him into doing it and they attacked him at the right time. Now, the other, what I want to point out is this isn't Taniela's fault. He's been able to get away with it in Super Rugby Pacific, Super Rugby AU, Super Rugby, you know, previous iterations of Super Rugby. But no one at the Reds, no one at the Wallabies seems to have picked it up, or if they have, they haven't done the work with him to implement some more strategies against better better. Loose head props, better hookers, better front rows, better packs. You know, there are hundreds of different ways that you can approach scrummaging. And I think as a tight head prop, that needs to be your number one job. People always get upset when I say that, but it's position-specific skills, right? If you're a tight head prop, scrummaging should be the top of your list. It's awesome if you can... Awesome if you're an athlete. If you can run the 109 seconds, unreal. But if you're going to wear number one or number three on your back, you need to be able to do your job 
the key job in winning our set piece back so that we can start again. Because set piece can be really dangerous, can be really deadly if we get it right, if we get clean ball, particularly from the scrum. We got Marika Corabetti out on the wing. We never get him the ball. That's another problem, but anyway. So, as I said, people always get angry when I say that, but that's, that's job number one. Just like if you're a fly half, job number one should be the way that you organize the team around the park and the way you identify space. Should be able to kick, should be able to pass, should be able to catch. Understand these guys are footballers. Absolutely. And every everyone from 1 to 3, sorry, 1 to 15 or 1 to 23 should who who wears a gold jersey should have elite skills, catch pass skills, tackling skills, breakdown skills. But there are position specific skills that are super duper important. For example, an inside center or second 58 for our friends in New Zealand needs to be elite defensively. If an inside center can't tackle, it's going, to be, it's going to be a long day for the team that the inside center is on because a good fly half is just going to attack that channel with his back rowers, with his centers, with some of the bigger bodies. Some of the props might get a carry. Taniella, you might get a carry at the weak defensive 12. But it's much more important for an inside center to have elite defensive skills, tackling, organization, talk, than it is for a prop who is generally going to be in and around the ruck. He still needs to make tackles. He still needs to understand that. But his understanding of defense doesn't need to be on, a, on, a, on as high a level as the, as the inside center. In the same vein, a fullback doesn't need to know how to, how to play prop. He doesn't need to know how to scrummage. When's he ever going to be in there? Never. Even when even when we get a yellow card and one of those wingers comes on the side of the scrum, they never push anyway. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. Number one, scrummage. Do that first. Get really good at that. Then worry about the other stuff. So, Taniela, this isn't your fault. And... I want you to know that I think you could be one of the best tight head props in the world because of all of the other things that you bring to a team. But what I want to see is an investment from Australian rugby in your scrummaging. You've clearly got the strength, you've got the size, you've got the athleticism. Now, if we can translate all of those things into the way that you're scrummaging, give you some more techniques, give you an understanding of the dark art up front, there is going to be no one who can stop Taniela Tupo, the Tongan Thor. But right now, you're not there. Alan Alatoa is hands down better, so much better as a scrummager. Yes, I understand he doesn't do some of the other things around the park, but he is a much better scrummager. Look at Angus Bell. He scrummages first. He can do all the other stuff too. Scrummages first. And if you ask him, that's what he'll that's what he'll tell you he does first. The other thing I want to talk about is all this fly half nonsense. So 
James O'Connor's just been axed from the squad. It's pretty rough. And, and I get it, you know, underprepared, whatever. Having to take over from Quade Cooper, that's a, that's a tough ask. But what, what's happened to Noah? We've just given up on Noah. Bernard Foley is going over instead of James O'Connor. So we've, we've completely given up on James O'Connor. He's done. Noah, Noah Lalesio, I appreciate he's not ready to, to take it on full time. But to bring in Bernard Foley, oh, I'm headbutting the microphone for those who are listening. Like, we gave up on him years ago. He doesn't really give us anything that we don't already have. If you want to pivot, just put Reese Hodge there and tell him, catch the ball and pass it. That's all you do the whole game. And if you need to kick, kick it. Kick it out. Otherwise, you just catch it and you shift it to the midfield because that's all you get from Bernard Foley. And I hope I eat my words. I hope he comes in and I hope he's Stephen Larkham 2.0. But he's not. I would prefer an investment in Tane Edmund and Ben Donaldson. Let's do that. Like, screw it. Quaid's... It pains me to say, but Quaid is probably never going to play for the Wallabies again. I got I got in a lot of trouble when I said this the other day, but he's ruptured his Achilles tendon. And there are a few examples of people who's who have ruptured their Achilles tendon in their 30s. Kobe Bryant is a great example. Tore his at 34. When he tore his, he was averaging 27 points a game. He came back pretty much without any of his athleticism, but he was skilled enough to still be very effective. I'm not going to take that away from him. He was, a, he, he was very effective, great shooter, great ball handler, great facilitator, but the athleticism, the ability to get to the hoop, get up and finish had pretty much gone. Now, it is well documented how hard... Kobe Bryant worked at his craft and worked at his body. Now, I'm not saying that Quaid is any different. I know that he looks after his body and he will do everything in his power to get back. But what are, what is Quaid good at? What makes him an elite fly half? His first step, his acceleration. If he loses that and that becomes, you know, average, I don't, I don't know what kind of fly half he is anymore. I'm not counting him out. I want him to come back. I want him I want him to be our fly half of the World Cup. I don't think he will because I just, you know, 12 months is is probably the minimum um that he will need to do the rehab and and I firmly believe he's going to need games under his belt. He can't just come into the World Cup cold having rehabbed him. Yeah, yeah, you're good to go and straight back into the Wallaby squad. I just think that will be a disaster. So what I would rather see now is an investment for the next 12 months in Lalesio, in Edmund, and Donaldson. And I think at some point we just have to pick one of them. If we're convinced James O'Connor's not the guy, great. He's not the guy. 
Bernard Foley definitely isn't the guy. I know, I know, he was in that team in 2015. They went to World Cup, but he's not the guy. I'm telling you, he's not the guy. I think potentially one of the three guys I just mentioned, and potentially Pesitoa, who's over in, over in Western Australia. One of those four guys potentially could could be the guy, but we need an investment in them. Now let's keep Quaid around. Let's make sure he's working with the guys, showing them how to prep, showing them how to how to do their thing, showing showing them what he sees in the replays, you know, in the drills, all of those things. Let's keep him around. Let's make sure he's a really strong mentor for them. Let's do the same thing with Kurtley. And if if Bernard has come in to play that role, that's fine. If he's coming to play that role, sit on the bench for a couple of tests and not play and help Noah get through, that is totally fine. Because why don't we just bring Matt Giddo back? <laughs> like, I feel like Matt Giddo would do a better job than Bernard at this point. That's not a knock on Gitz. He's, he's incredible. Anyway, I'm, do- I'm done with that rant. I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I'm apologizing. For, for that rant. What I am excited about, we've got two tests in South Africa. It's, I don't know how I feel about these tours either. You know, for the reasons I just spoke about, the guys already spend a lot of time away from their families. So, you know, three weeks at a time, come home for a couple of days, go for another two, two and a half, three weeks. I think it's pretty rough. I think it's pretty difficult. But anyway, it seems to work. It, it, I get the... COVID protocol and, and all of that, it, it makes sense. So uh, we got a, we got, we got we got a good couple of weeks coming up. I think any time, if we could go to South Africa, get one win, at least one win, I think we'd be happy. If we get two, we'd be ecstatic, but I think one is, one is doable. We just need injury-free, need to settle on a, on a side and... Pick a fly half. <laughs> like, and, and you know, maybe we just live with with some of the mistakes Noah's going to give us in the short term in the hope that, you know, he, he gets enough footy to be the guy at the next World Cup. I don't know. All right, enough of that. Let's get into my conversation with Bob Gonzalez. I'm joined today by Bob Gonzalez, uh, author of Flicker in the Water. Thank you uh, for your time today. And also congratulations. I hear that the book has hit number one on, on the Amazon charts. Yes, on Kindle. And I appreciate that. Thank you, Liam. <laughs> so I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you, you know, what, what is it about fishing, you know, that 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 led you to to dedicate you know a significant amount of time to writing a, a book about it it took a couple of months um i started right around the new year and it was around march when i finished writing it and then that's when the editing and all the other process starts and that that takes even more time yeah yeah and, <laughs> and um you know i i'm i i grew up here in australia in a in a place called canberra and we we have uh, fresh water so we have Lake Burley Griffin and we have um, the Malonglo River. And I spent, you know, I have lots of fond memories uh, with my grandpa fishing fishing in the in the Malonglo River and, and uh, on Lake Burley Griffin. And if you ask anyone who is a, 
who is a fisherman, uh, they'll tell you that it's it's a terrible place to fish. There's not very many fish and they're, and they're not very good fish. But for me, the memories uh, that I created were, were less about catching the fish and more just sitting around and and, and talking to my grandpa and, and learning things from my grandpa. I've talked about him a lot on this podcast um, because he, he just used to do lots of things with me. But did you have a similar experience, you know, with fishing growing up with your dad? Oh, yeah. Um, we fished uh, from the time that I was a kid. We used to go to uh, New Jersey offshore, and uh, we used to catch bluefish there in the uh, summer times and cod in the winter. But, yeah, um, I want to mention that experience you said you had with your grandfather. A lot of people feel that way. It's not only about the fish. It's about the experience of being outdoors and just bonding with your family and, and your friends. That's what fishing does for people. Yeah, and it's it. I think also as an adult, it's kind of, you know, th- those quiet times of reflection where you're just sitting. You're not saying a whole lot, but you're just sort of sitting, thinking, connecting with connecting with the water, connecting with with your family. You know, there's a lot to be said of just kind of sitting in silence and 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 waiting and anticipating. And I think as an adult, that's a that's a pretty good skill to have to be able to just slow yourself down, even when you're not fishing, just to be able to slow yourself down and and reflect on what's coming, what's been, um, and, and what you have. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's, it, it's, it's very relaxing unless the waves begin to churn up, then it's not so relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to admit, I've never, I have never been deep sea fishing. It's been on my, you know, it's been on my bucket list for a long time. And I know that that's something you do are there, you know, there. Any funny uh, stories that you've had, you know, like a first timer out there where it's sort of gone wrong? Oh, well, you know, <laughs> the first time a person gets seasick is never fun. <laughs> it, <laughs> a lot of people will persist and get through it and they'll go out a second, third time. But um, some people won't, you know, they'll get sick once and they won't go anymore. It, I've been sick. Most fishermen at one time or another gets, you know, seasick. It happens to the best of us. <laughs> Have, have you ever been out there and been like, you know, the waves are kicking up and, and you've been like, oh, okay, this is this is pretty hairy. This might be the end. We've had some rough moments. Uh, I talk about them in the book, a couple of them. Um, I don't think I've ever been in a serious life-threatening situation, although I, I know people who have. Yeah. And, uh, and I describe that in the book, and it, it's not any fun. Even uh, getting caught in a regular thunderstorm is no fun. Mm. But you you have to hang on and just uh, hang on for dear life. Literally, sometimes. <laughs> I bet I bet the sickness clears up pretty quickly when that happens. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, because you're so focused that you don't have time to think about being sick. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I I wanted to ask you too. You know, when when you're out there, and and you're you know you're looking for fish fish to catch. Are you are you looking for something specific? Like when you go to a certain area of the ocean are you looking for a specific kind of fish is that the purpose or do you just go out there to, to see what's out there oh no there's definitely a plan yeah uh, there's a plan it depends on what you're fishing for here we do a lot of bottom fishing and um also we, we troll and uh for pelagic fish that move all through the ocean um when you're trolling you're definitely looking for signs you're looking for currents uh, that might run, be running against each other where the fish love to congregate. You're looking for weeds where they love to be under. Uh, any signs of structure. Like here we have some oil rigs and platforms that fish love to congregate around. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, we look for signs like that. We look for birds. We look for um, water temperature changes, all things like that. When you're fishing more for bottom fish, you have a, um, a coordinated spot that you go to and you drop your bait all the way down to the bottom. And you know that they're there most of the time. You can see them on your finder, your depth finder, and it's a different kind of fishing. But, yeah, we do that a lot up here in Destin in the Panhandle in Florida. Mm. The, the water gets really deep here really quick off the shore. So that allows for, you know, the, a wide variety of fish to come through here. Mm. That's cool. That's not. Yeah. So, that's not I know it. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I know that in Australia, there's a lot of deep water around Australia, so the offshore fishing is very good there too. Yeah, it. it people are often surprised, and and I don't know a huge amount about it, but people are often surprised. Like you know, for example, um, Sydney Harbour. Basically, as soon as you get out out of Sydney Harbour, it's just it just drops off a cliff. It's huge, you know, masses of water, mm. and people are often surprised. You know, even. Um, you know, there are some ferry rides that you can sort of take out of the harbour and, and around um, and up to the sort of the northern mm-hmm. beaches. People are really surprised that you sort of get out of the harbour and you can kind of see, you kind of feel safe in a way, like it's not super deep, it's relatively deep. But then as soon as you get off mm-hmm. off the coast, it just drops off and, and all of a sudden it's this really dark water that you, you can see because obviously it's very deep. So people are, yeah, very surprised at how quickly it drops off. It sounds like it's the same where you yeah. guys are. Yeah, 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 and that that's great for uh, blue marlin and wahoo and dolphin and things like that. They love that deep water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you guys get black marlin there too. Something we don't get over here. Yeah, yeah, and you know it's it's big it's big business here in Australia. You know, um, fishing tours and fishing charters and and you know we have we also have a um, for commercial fisheries commercial fishermen we have a centralized system. I'm not sure if it's the same in the in the United States, but when you bring in fish to sell to Australia, you have to bring them through Sydney, through the fish market, and you sell them to the Sydney fish market, and then it gets distributed to the retailers from from the market. So, you know, we don't we don't really have a, a system where you can buy you know fresh fish off the back of a of someone's boat, which um which was you know something I experienced mm. overseas and in Europe, which was amazing. You know, buy buy a tuna a fresh tuna off the back of someone's boat they'll cut you a steak and away you go yeah um one thing you mentioned to me before is that you you were a your former baseball player and uh yeah i so um baseball is something that my me and my dad um we shared a, a a love for and and unfortunately when i was a kid in australia we didn't have we didn't have much much baseball uh, available, so I played softball, I played t-ball, and then there wasn't there wasn't much available for me. But I still have my glove, and I've got I've got another glove for for my son for when he's one. So you know, a little bit of time. G- give him six months, he'll be he'll be throwing a curveball. No no problems. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to I want to ask you. You, me- you mentioned you're a, a a college baseball player in Australia. We sort of have this clubs based system. We don't really have recruitment. We don't have varsity sports. I wanted to ask you about that sort of process when you were being recruited as a as a high school athlete. How that sort of happens because that's not something that um, a lot of people in Australia understand how that works. Do you mind sort of just mm-hmm. explaining that to us a little bit? Well, my information is not that current because that that happened to me about thirty thirty five years ago. <laughs> 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 I'll be happy to tell you my experience. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we, <laughs> they we go to your high, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, they go, they go to your high school and they talk to your coaches and teachers and they want to get to know you and know what kind of person you are and uh, how you would fit in their university. If you're if you're being recruited by colleges, the minor leagues, I don't know if that's how they would do it. I think they just come in and they draft you if they like the way you play. Yeah. Um, yeah. In my case, yeah, they, they talk to the coaches and the teachers and everything. And then I mean, they're they're. They have a lot of people they recruit all the time, so you know they have to really like what you do on and off the field if they want really want you. Mm. And that's pretty much how they did it with us. I don't know how they do it these days? They probably back then we didn't have uh, Skype calls and Zoom calls and things like that. <laughs> yeah. They would go in person. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's probably saved the universities a lot of money, right? That 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 they, they can do yeah. the calls, you know, via virtually yeah. now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you ever, you know, did you ever consider playing minor league baseball? Was was that an option for you at one point? Well, yeah. Um, you have to get drafted by a team to play in the minor leagues. Um, I was never fortunate enough to get drafted. My experience ended in college. Yeah. I had some teammates though that were drafted. Uh, I don't think any of them quite made the majors, but a few of them made the minors. In fact, one of my teammates from high school has a nephew right now who's in the Mets, New York Mets minor league system. Yeah, wow. He's in the double uh, A team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. that that's something that people in Australia don't totally appreciate is we have our, our systems designed so that if you don't, you know, if you don't progress to the professional level or the semi-professional level, there's there's still options for you to play. You know, relatively high performance sport. You know, we have sort of amateur club sport which is which is really highly regarded particularly in a sport like rugby um was it hard to to sort of finish you know after your four years in college sort of go uh, you know that's it yeah it's very hard it's uh because it's a total life change you know you dedicate yourself to you know playing baseball since the time you're a kid and then you have to go out and do something else overnight, pretty much. <laughs> and, but yeah, it, it takes a little adjustment period. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, you, you did so when when you finished when you finished playing baseball is was like was fishing something you were doing while you were while you were still playing? Like, were you still doing that? Well, everyone's while we would go we didn't do it kind of as a lifestyle until many years later you know where we used to fish all the time <laughs> but um yeah there are some stories in there were of the summers where we used to go and catch fish in new jersey and that sort of thing um, you know maybe once or twice a year we would do a trip yeah yeah uh, do you and you, yeah, uh, we got to florida though well, i moved to florida in my 20s and when we got to florida we got a boat and we started going fishing, you know, a few times a week for, we did that for like almost 15 years and that that's all those stories are in the book. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, well, I mean, Florida, right? Warm water, you know, boat. Yeah. Why, why, why wouldn't you? Yeah. I learned a lot about the, uh, ocean currents and, uh, you know, what, like, for example, I didn't know this, the, 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 the loop current that flows up into the Gulf of Mexico from the Caribbean, it, it wraps around and then loops between Key West and Cuba and then connects with the Gulf Stream and goes all the way up the eastern coast of the U.S. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, I didn't really know that. I knew there was a loop current, but I didn't know it collected with the Gulf Stream. Yeah. And uh, sometimes that, yeah, sometimes that loop and can just barely enter the Gulf before it wraps around and then connects. And other times it could go all the way up to like the Louisiana, Florida coast yeah. and then come down and then connect. So, and I didn't know how, how wide that was. That thing, that loop current is about 150 miles wide. 
Wow. Yeah, and it it flows at like five miles an hour, and it's like over two thousand feet deep. I didn't know a lot of these things, <laughs> and um, it, yeah, it gives off these eddies, these little little currents that that like branch off of it, and some of them that flow in like a, a clockwise motion are warm water, and then the counterclockwise ones are cold water, and they last for about a year on their own. Yeah, I never knew a lot of this stuff until I was doing the book. <laughs> It, 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 it is it is fascinating you know um in australia where the uh, uh, and and just worldwide currents actually do have an impact on the weather you know if you've if you've got a yeah. really cold current that runs up you know runs up a coast it actually impacts the you know the weather across across you know the uh, an area and and i had no understanding of that um Probably until a couple of years ago, when a friend of mine who lives in in Scotland was talking about it, I said, like, "What? The, what are you talking about? Water doesn't affect the weather." He's like, "Yeah, look it up." <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> and you know, I think you know, I think that's that was sort of one thing my grandpa talked about. Um, he was a sailor too, so he had a really um, unique, I guess, understanding of currents and wind and and how that impacts fishing. But that I think that's one thing people don't necessarily appreciate about good fishing and, and good fishermen and, and is is the the understanding of currents the understanding of weather the understanding of of um you know the temperature in the water and and positioning and and all of that like it's a real art it's a real science oh it's, yeah yeah it's not just going out and you know throwing a rod in and and seeing what what happens there seems to be a real yeah a real understanding a real cerebral understanding of of the environment that you're in and uh, yeah 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 i think moon phases yeah yes yes is another really important yeah. one and i just uh yeah, yeah. I, I don't think people really totally understand that i think you know and and sometimes you know fishing is just for, for for a lot of people just throw the rod in and and see how you go but yeah if you you know every, everyone that i know who's had a really good experience you know has has spent time with someone who really understands the environment and you know that's probably a a, a bit of a a decent metaphor for life if you really have a cerebral understanding of your environment then there is an ability to succeed oh yeah for sure yeah every sportsman should have a plan <laughs> <laughs> well look I'll, I'll i'll let you i'll let you keep get, getting on with your day bob so to all the listeners out there flicker in the water in australia it's available on amazon amazon.com.au you can get it you can get the paperback version or you can get it via Kindle. Bob, I really appreciate your time, even though we did have some technical difficulties early. Yeah, that's okay. Let, let me, uh, here's a copy of the ah, book. Perfect. There it is. It's, it is a beautiful yeah. looking book. It's very striking. So please yeah. guys go out, go out and get it because there are some fantastic stories in there and uh, it sounds like you really enjoyed writing it. Oh, I loved it. It was a labor of love for sure. <laughs> Thank you very much, Bob. Thank you, Liam. Maybe we could do it again. Yeah, it'd be good. Thank you, Bob. Get his book. I've never read a fishing book before, but I might read this one. Thank you to all of you guys for listening. This isn't goodbye. I promise this isn't goodbye. This is refresh. I've got an opportunity to contribute to some other areas on the website do a bit of other work that's going to be more impactful than doing this show for the moment. We're going to rebrand the show. 
The page will still be active though. So make sure you get to the page at give them Liam. That will change, but I will make an announcement somewhere when that changes because we are, as I said, we are going to rebrand the show. But thank you again to you guys for listening. You guys are the reason I do it. And I will be back. I'm going to say February, but it could be earlier than that if a couple of things go our way. There are a couple of things that I'm working towards at the end of the year, some sevens work and and all of those. So we will see, we'll see. But for now, February will be when we're back. I've really enjoyed the last sort of four or five months or so. I didn't quite get as many episodes as I wanted to get done. I didn't quite get as many guests through as I would have liked, but scheduling is really difficult when people have proper jobs. <laughs> and if you listen to to the front end of the show, there, there, there's all of that too. So I want you to know I'll be back. I'm really pumped about the rebrand. I'm really pumped about the format that we'll go ahead with in February and, and maybe earlier, but stay tuned for that. Thank you to the cover the Cover Podcast Network. Make sure you get to the website. Check out everything that's going up on there. It's mostly footy content at the moment because the round ball basketball stuff isn't happening until later in the year. But just get there, do it, read some stuff, sign up to the newsletter. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you guys when I see you. <laughs> <laughs>